0: Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the Appearance Psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating
1: everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And in this episode, we're going to talk about why we care about body image, but from a public health perspective.
0: Right, a good back to basics episode for the year.
1: Yes. And seeing as this is a new year, welcome to 2021, by the way. I'm saying that, I'm saying that quickly because I'm not going to dwell on it too much. It's, it's been a difficult transition to put that lightning um, for a lot of us. So, um, seeing as this is the first podcast episode of 2021, we thought that this would be a really good opportunity to recap on the topic of body image more broadly.
0: Right, I feel you, Jade. The less said about the first few weeks of 2021, the better in my book, but completely agree. A great episode to get into in more depth. We obviously have spoken about body image and talk about body image all the time on this podcast, but we haven't really dug into the studies looking at the outcomes associated with
1: negative body image. So
0: we're going to get into that today. And it's a good
1: one. It's juicy. Oh, yes. I I actually agree. Stay tuned for all the juice <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness
0: you know the word juice just makes me think of lizzo now um i will spare our listeners my singing i wish we could insert a little clip but um you know i just want to bob along <laughs> i
1: i wish you could give the listeners what i can see and those Lizzo-esque dance moves you're throwing yeah <laughs> oh yeah i'm going i'm going to spare the listeners my singing voice as well but How about we get started with the episode? (laughs) Good idea. So, as we said, taking it right back to basics, let's start by giving a quick definition of body image. So we're all on the same page. When we are talking about body image, we are discussing how a person thinks and feels about the way their body looks and how it functions.
0: Right, body image is more than just how you see yourself in the mirror, In addition to how you self-evaluate your appearance, how you, you judge how you look, body image also includes how you feel in your body, so how connected you are with your body, how at home do you feel in it, as well as then how you go on to treat your body.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's good to remember that body image is influenced as well by many external societal factors, we call it, and we feel pressure to look a certain way by things like the media, friends, family, other strangers on the internet, for example. <laughs> oh my goodness, I wish um,
0: we have that included in the tarpite influence model, strangers on the internet,
1: appearance, pressure, influence. <laughs> it's (laughs) I think it's an important, important addition to it, to be fair. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And all these messages that we receive about how we should, in um, inverted commas, look, can Mm. affect how we think and feel about our own appearance, which can also impact our behaviours and, and how we look after our bodies, really.
0: Yeah, completely. So it's how we think about how we look, how we feel about how we look, how we feel in our bodies and how we treat our bodies. And While we're here, we might as well round off the child influence model and mention the two key mechanisms that help us understand the link between the social cultural appearance pressures and poor body image. So first, we have internalisation. So how much we buy into societal appearance standards. And then the second is appearance comparisons. So how much do we compare our appearance with the appearance of others? And so with the child influence model, the idea is that the more we internalise or buy into the societal appearance ideals and the more we compare our appearance with others, particularly if we're comparing ourselves with others who we perceive to be more attractive, so we're comparing upwards in an upwards direction, um, the more likely it is that we are going to feel badly about how we look. And then to really round it off and finish off um, this model is that in turn, from body dissatisfaction, we then see a link to disordered eating behaviours such as restriction um, and bulimic symptoms, as well as low mood.
1: Yeah, great. And we are kind of getting a bit geeky now, straight straight off the bat. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just can't help this... ourselves, can we, Jade? No, we. yes, we cannot. But this model is a key foundation to a lot of the body image research that we cover all the time so I think on that note now we've covered the foundations should we get into some some stats?
0: Yeah great idea so we often get asked about the prevalence of negative body image or body dissatisfaction and it can be a really difficult question to answer because you'll see lots of different figures um, and stats flying around and this is really an issue of measurement so what questions are being asked um, so it can be a bit difficult to navigate, um, but with that caveat in mind, um, we thought it'd be good to share some very recent statistics from the UK, which is where Jade and I, we are both, we are. So last year, the Women Equalities Committee published a report that found 61% of adults and 66% of children feel negatively about their body most of the time.
1: Yeah, and also as an FYI on that note, the Centre for Appearance Research submitted written evidence as part of the Women and Equalities Committee Body Image Inquiry. Um, So, yeah, you know, with any inquiries, they do invite people to submit evidence. Mm -hmm. And I know that you were heavily involved in that, Nadia, as well as um, Professor Philippa Diedrichs, uh, who you've heard previously on the podcast, and other members of the team as well.
0: Yeah, that's that's right. It was a, a team effort. And then our co-director Dr Amy Slater also went on to provide oral evidence which is available to watch online Um, and we will link to that in the show notes.
1: Great and then there's the Mental Health Foundation report which was published in 2019 that found that one third of adults in the UK have felt anxious or depressed because of concerns about their body image so linking back to what you said earlier Nadia about the negative outcomes about low mood and depression as well. Right exactly and this
0: As you say, Jade, start showing us this big picture on the impact of negative body image. So in that first report, in those first stats that we shared, we've got the 66% of adults and 66% of children. So approximately two-thirds of people feeling negatively about their body image most of the time. So are experiencing negative body image most of the time. And then this second report shows approximately a third of adults in the UK feeling anxious or depressed as a result of these negative feelings about their appearance. And so these stats are really useful to look at together. And I think what's important to to highlight is that because body image concerns are so common, particularly among girls and women, they're often trivialised as being benign. So not important, uh, not really a big deal. But And here's the real crux of today's episode, so spoiler. <laughs> negative body image is far from benign, it is associated with a whole range of negative outcomes, which is why we position it as a important public health issue.
1: Exactly, perfectly summed up, Nadia. And regarding the the two reports that we brought the statistics from, we are also going to link that in the show notes, as well as what Nadia mentioned with um, Amy Slater's evidence she provided too so they are all free to access as well which is great so please do check them out. Um, We also want to acknowledge that these statistics are UK based but also to highlight there is increasing research from around the world that shows similar trends regarding body dissatisfaction. This is not just a UK-based issue. And we've discussed these kind of topics and related to the issue of body dissatisfaction more globally in previous episodes. And we're going to continue to do this and discuss it in the future as well. So please do check out previous episodes and stay tuned for the future ones. Um, (laughs) just, Just in case... Just in case she wasn't going to already. (laughs) Um, So linking all those previous points as well, it's clear that body image concerns are a massive problem globally, which affects a large proportion of the population and disproportionately affects girls and women. And therefore it's vital that body image and body image concerns are really taken seriously within public health, with more awareness and campaigns being developed to combat this important issue.
0: couldn't agree more, Jade. So with that in mind, I think this is a perfect time to bring in Helena and Izzy to talk to us about their work
1: researching the impact of negative body image
0: among adolescents.
1: Agreed. And to switch it up a little bit, we both spoke to Helena and Izzy and we got to talk about some really important research on body image that they've worked on. And they worked on this research alongside Dr. Amy Slater and Anna Bornoli as well, just to highlight
0: Yes it has been a minute since we've done an interview together but we should do it more often I really enjoyed it. So in this conversation Helena and Izzy tell us all about the three papers they've recently published based on a longitudinal cohort dataset that allowed them to look at predictors and outcomes of body dissatisfaction in adolescents in the UK. It's seriously impressive stuff and their most recent study got picked up in the Times last month uh, which again we will link to in the show notes.
1: We are really building up them links in the show notes, aren't we, Nadia? (laughs) (laughs) You can't say we don't try um, and give you as much as we can.
0: Anyway, let's move on to some introductions. So, Dr. Helena Lewis smith is a Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Appearance Research and is becoming a regular on the podcast. You may remember her from our most recent episode, Body Image in India, as well as an episode in the archive from about three years ago, I think, on breast cancer and body image.
1: That long ago, eh? Well, <laughs> And I love Helena, a jack of all trades. <laughs> it's great yeah. to have her back. And um, we're also joined by Dr Izzy Bray, who is the Associate Head of Department for Research and Knowledge Exchange at the University of West of England. Izzy's work focuses on the application of statistics to health-related data and much more of her research focuses on um, mental health more broadly. So both great guests to help us explore the topic of body image and how body image concerns can be tackled from a public health perspective. Completely. And just before we get into the interview,
0: as a quick content warning, the conversation does get into a, a very common public health discussion about, and I quote, the problem of obesity. We do unpack it within the conversation to an extent and then again a little bit after but we felt it was important to keep it in the episode to highlight the importance of these discussions and public health and psychology researchers coming together to work through these differences of opinion and training so we are all working aligned to our shared values Um, but we just wanted to flag it in case it was something that you felt that you would rather not listen to. Um, and to say also the research, the, the conversation about the research is, is really interesting and informative. So we hope you you do enjoy. But we just, as I say,
1: again, just wanted to flag that. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I suggest we not keep up the suspense any further. And, and we hear from Helena and Izzy. Hi, Helena and Izzy. Welcome back to the podcast, Helena. Hi.
2: <laughs> it's great to be back again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. second, third, I don't even know how many times you've been on Helen it's been it's been great to have you every time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and welcome, Izzy um, for your first debut. Hi. It's great to have you both. And so Nadia and I have been having a discussion on this podcast episode, thinking about body image from a public health perspective.
0: And we're just so pleased that both of you can join us and talk about some of the work that you've done on this topic. So with that, I think let's get into it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I guess I'd like to start by kind of asking you both and and focusing this question towards yourself, Izzy. What What is ALSPAC and what is your role in this research, really?
3: OK, thanks. So ALSPAC stands for the Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children. And that's known locally, actually, as children of the 90s. So a lot of people in the Avon area will have heard of children of the 90s. And it's a really large cohort study which recruited around 14,000 pregnant women in the area, Um, who were going to give birth in 1990 to 1991. Um, It then followed them up into adulthood with frequent data collection via clinics and lots of questionnaires. Um, And so before I came to UWE, I actually worked at Auspac for a year as a researcher. Loved it. Had a great time. And... I obviously became aware of the incredibly rich data available through the Ausback study, which is useful for both medical and social science research. But what really caught my imagination was one day I was shown a box of questionnaires that were completed when the children were very young. And um, there was a series of questionnaires um, that were sort of to get children used to completing questionnaires when they were really tiny. So I asked them to do things like draw a picture of, I don't know, your favourite toy or something like that. Um, And this data hadn't been used. And um, one of the questions was a figure rating scale, which I was not familiar with at the time, but I, you know, it really made me wonder what could we do with this data? Um, So that's what got me thinking. And then when I started working at UE, I was having these ideas about research and I was put in touch with Amy Slater at Carr. So then we employed Helena, as the as the researcher on the project and it went from there really um, we later employed Anna Borneoli so we ended up as a team four working on this research.
0: Brilliant thanks Ivy. that's such a lovely introduction to the project so I know the studies that you've published with Alspark there's a couple of them and they're longitudinal studies and some of our listeners are really interested in understanding research methods so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what longitudinal
3: studies are and what the benefits of this approach is. Okay, so Ausback is a really good example of a longitudinal study. It's a birth cohort study because it recruited people who were all going to be born around the same time. And it then followed them up. And it's still following them up. So mm-hmm. long, longitudinal or cohort studies can be any length but um, Ausback has gone on for decades Mm -hmm. which is just brilliant obviously you lose people over time and that's a little bit of an issue so we have to be aware of that um and the benefits of longitudinal studies are that when you look at associations between variables at one point in time you don't know which way around the association is so for example if you measure body dissatisfaction and depression at the same time you might see an association you might assume that the body dissatisfaction is leading to depression, but actually it could be the other way around. It could be that um, people's depression is leading to them to view their bodies more negatively. So what the data in the Ausback longitudinal study has enabled us to do is, for example, to look at body dissatisfaction at 14 years of age, and then to look at how this is associated with outcomes such as depression later on, say at 18 years of age.
1: Lovely, thank you. That was a really helpful explanation, as um, Nadia said, in terms of like research methods so thank you for that izzy and also on the note of the Ausback data um being a bristol girl myself and born in 1994 i actually know someone in a family that was um in the Ausback studies so it's really nice to kind of hear
2: awesome
1: yeah it's really lovely to hear like how that data is actually being used um so yeah on the note of you know how the data is being used what are some of the key findings and outcomes from the data regarding body dissatisfaction and it's relation to other kind of health behaviours.
2: Helena, I was wondering if you you wanted to highlight that. Sure. So um, we've been very fortunate to conduct three studies. And um, whilst we had um, the original one, original one in mind, um, we got very, very excited and kind of kept having more ideas about what we could study. So maybe I could talk to you about the first one, which actually looked at um, uh, people very, very young at age. So it first started at age seven, and essentially, we were interested in finding out whether BMI, so body mass index, um, at a young age would lead to disordered eating and depression um, in adolescence. And just to clarify, not in terms of a biological factor, but as we know in this kind of field, more of a sociocultural factor. So, you know, society's view of weight and the fact that it doesn't you know, value higher BMI. Um, so we followed young people from age seven to age 14 and what we found which is really interesting is that girls and boys both, so both who had higher BMI at age seven were more likely to have um, symptoms of disordered eating at age 14 and this is one of the kind of few studies that's looked at at this in such a young young age and what was interesting as well is that we found that this was mediated by body dissatisfaction. Which probably isn't surprising um, and it suggests that you know young people who have higher BMI are more likely to feel dissatisfied with their body um, because as I said society's view of BMI and then they may be more likely to engage in restrained eating etc etc try and perhaps to try and control their weight or to self-soothe as well and um, so that was a really really interesting finding and we also found that for girls within that study that higher BMI also led to depressive symptoms at age 14 and that this was also mediated by body dissatisfaction so when I talk about mediation what that means is um, it kind of explains why that happens so let's say for example um, that age seven someone has a higher BMI and then at age 14 they have um, they're they're showing higher symptoms related to disordered eating so that could be restrictive eating that could be purging that could be excessive exercise etc. And then when I talk about a mediator, that's something that's explaining the relationship between those two things. So in this case, we found that body dissatisfaction at age 10 um, was also related to both BMI and disordered eating. So what that basically told us is if you think about the sequence of events, kids who were seven who had higher BMI were then more likely to feel dissatisfied with their body at age 10 and were then more likely to experience disordered eating at age 14. So what's really interesting about using longitudinal studies is that we can look at these pathways so we can look at kind of the order of events and work out, you know, what mechanisms are explaining the relationships that we're seeing. Um, and I think the one final thing to mention about that study um, is what we also are interested in looking at is puberty. So puberty has been studied loads in the research. But what tends to happen is people bunch all the different signs of puberty together. So there's only kind of one measure of puberty. So, you know, we can't we can't tease out the different aspects of puberty. But what we thought would be really interesting to look at is uh, those more visible indicators of puberty. So you can see, for example, how tall an adolescent boy is, and you can usually see whether a girl, you know, where she is in terms of her breast development. So we chose these two particular aspects of puberty. So height for boys, which, as we know, is kind of favoured in society because masculinity, etc., And then we looked at breast development for girls, um, given that breasts are obviously an indicator of femininity, sexuality, but also that's kind of associated with older age and not necessarily when you're a teenager and what was really interesting is we found that puberty was so sorry girls who had more advanced stages of breast development specifically were more likely to have disordered eating and depression a year later and this is a novel finding and you know so we're really um kind of you know shocked but also excited to find that and i think there needs to be more research now that looks at why that is and again it could be because you know, girls are being pushed away, um, you know, from being as slender and thin as they would have been in a kind of pre-pubertal body type. But it also could be because they're not necessarily kind of cognitively prepared for the objectification they may start to experience. You know, it may be that boys start viewing them in a different way. Um, So that was really interesting. And then with the height, even though we didn't find any significant effects, there was this trend, right, that boys who were shorter were more likely to experience depressive symptoms and disordered eating symptoms. Um, So yeah, so that was the first study and that was yeah we were really really chuffed with those findings. That was brilliant Helena
0: and there was just so much in there and I'm so grateful that you explained mediation because I think that really helps us understand uh, these relationships and again the beauty of longitudinal research of why we have these um, trends so why BMI may lead to disordered eating uh, further down the line among adolescents. So I know that uh, there are three studies so that was study one I wonder if you could start talking about some of the key findings from study two. Was the focus different and and what, what were the findings?
2: Sure. So then we kind of moved a little bit further on in adolescence. So we we're interested in looking at whether body dissatisfaction specifically at age 14. Um, so remove BMI, remove that. It's just focused on body dissatisfaction at 14 and whether that can lead to increased depressive symptoms at age 18. So four years later, essentially. And what we found um, is that... Uh, both boys and girls who had higher body dissatisfaction at age 14 were more likely to have mild symptoms of depression at age 18 and then for girls we found that they were also more likely to have moderate and severe um, symptoms of depression so we looked so we didn't just look at depressive symptoms kind of generally flattened we actually looked at in terms of these different in in terms of severity the differences but what was quite shocking is that we found for boys um, that in terms of the impact of body dissatisfaction on severe episodes of depression, the relationship was a lot stronger than it was for girls, which suggests that boys who have body dissatisfaction are, you know, are are more negatively impacted in the sense that they're going to develop um, even more increased episodes of severe depression, if that makes sense. So I think this highlights quite nicely what Izzy said earlier, that, you know, as you both know in the research, we we see so much research that says, you know, body satisfaction is associated with depressive symptoms. um, But what's really nice is this kind of teases um the relationship apart and it kind of highlights here that body dissatisfaction predicts depression later on and and i think what was quite nice here as well is that we haven't spoken about yet is that you know the research so often focuses on disordered eating and as we all know is that body dissatisfaction can be trivialized And I think what's really nice here is it kind of highlights that, no, body dissatisfaction should be taken really, really seriously here. Because we know that body dissatisfaction leads to depression and we know that depression is a really, really, um, you know, big issue. Um, And so, yeah, so that was the second study. And just to butt in there, Helena, before you go
0: into study three, but I think that's a really interesting finding that the link between body dissatisfaction and depression was more pronounced in boys and I know you might not have been able to dig into this in any more detail but do you have any any just initial thoughts of of why that might be compared to girls
2: I think that's a really, really good question, Nadia. And more generally, what we know from the from the research is that um, depression is very common in adolescence among boys. Um, and that just tends to be the case when you look at the literature. And again, it might be because boys, um, you know, well, we know generally as, as, as a kind of gender that men are less um, are less like share their feelings, their emotions, for example, particularly among boys in schools, there's a lot of kind of teasing, bullying in a, in a kind of, you know, meant to be a jockey fun way. But actually, if you're the boy who is shorter and you haven't had your growth spurt yet for example you know you're going to be particularly negatively impacted by those kind of jokey teasing comments um you know and we know that boy particularly with the growth spurt because height is such a valued um aspect of appearance for kind of masculinity. Um, And as we know that boys, you know, there's such a distinct um, difference variability amongst boys, you know, during adolescence in terms of height, right, that it could maybe that those boys who are shorter. um, And let's say add on top of that, they may not be very muscular, which we also know is a very desired trait in society, it could be that they are worse off. Um, But yeah, I think it's also related to the teasing and just kind of the gender um, nature of it as well. Yeah, the masculinity aspect. Like, what immediately strikes to me is stigma
0: around men talking about or boys talking about body image concerns, which is often packaged as a as a female issue. And then just maybe the feelings of isolation as well. That maybe girls, if they're experiencing body image concerns, may be able to speak with their friends about it, or it's more normalised. It whereas I can imagine, and I'd love to to read more research on this, but I can imagine that, that an adolescent boy might feel like they're completely on their own in that situation
2: exactly and I think just generally there needs to be more research I mean we all know this anyway it goes without saying but one of the things that we were happy about with this research is that we could look at boys and I think there's less research on boys earlier on particularly in adolescence and I think this highlights that we need to be doing more research on them and also to look at that keyword again the mediators so you know what are the mechanisms that are explaining that so you know we're hypothesizing so we're coming up with ideas for why it may be but actually we need to do more research to look at you know is it that boys aren't sharing it is it that they're experiencing more kind of jock-like teasing um so you know i think this highlights we need to do more research specifically with boys as well
3: could i just add that, i think what mm-hmm. we need to do too is to replicate these findings in other cohort mm-hmm. studies um yep. which may be born at different times as well. So obviously. Mm-hmm this cohort is um, not you know there are about 30 these young people yeah and, and lots of things have changed in, including social media and the pressures that people face.
1: Does it, Yeah that's a really good point Izzy like you say keep um, replicating across Different cohorts, but also thinking about different, as you say, Helena, mediators and other factors that might be influencing and, and focused on males too, because this is an important issue, um, for them as well, evidently. Um, so on that note, uh, we've got, as we've alluded to before, three studies. So Helena, I was wondering if you want to, um, explain as well as you've explained the first two, the, fi- what, well, the kind of third study that included <laughs> this cohort.
2: Yeah, so last but not least, and this is one that we were all particularly excited about, I have to say, um, is we looked at, so again, the same stage of adolescence at age 14, so body dissatisfaction at age 14. But we're interested in following it slightly longer, so for seven years until they were 21 years of age. But here we're really interested in looking at the impact of body dissatisfaction on risky health behaviours. So when I say risky health behaviours, I mean um, smoking, cannabis use, other drug use, um, high risk, low risk drinking and self harm and also gambling we were interested in as well. Um, And I think this was particularly interesting as having kind of half of our team as the public health and the other half as a psychologist. You know, this is something we were all really, really excited about. And it's it's novel. So people have so we know from the research that disordered eating increases the risk for these outcomes. But body dissatisfaction hasn't been looked at in so much detail. And what we found was that among girls, it was kind of really quite scary. We found that girls who had greater dissatisfaction with their bodies were more likely to engage in smoking, drug use, High risk drinking and self harm. Um, not gambling, we didn't find any impact for gambling, but you know, that's a lot of behaviors, risky health behaviors um, that they're engaging in. And then for boys, we found that um, they were only more likely to engage in smoking. So they weren't engaging in the other risky health behaviors due to body dissatisfaction, but they were in smoking. And it's also important here to highlight that, going back to those mediators again, um, that disordered eating mediated some of these. So, for example, girls who were more likely to self-harm because of body dissatisfaction, the reason why that was is because they went on to engage in disordered eating and then they went on to engage in self-harm. So it's important to kind of highlight that whilst we know that body dissatisfaction on its own can predict some of these, for some of the behaviours, um, you know, dis- um, disordered eating also comes into it as well. But yeah, so these, these findings were really, really exciting. And I'm sure Izzy can speak more about from public health <laughs> why, these, why these findings were so important.
3: Yeah, it's just something that I was going to add as you were talking there, Helena, that um, I think as we were doing this research, we, we discussed this. But in many ways, I think disordered eating or certainly eating disorders are a, 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 um, are a risky behaviour and a form of self-harm. Mm. so all of these um concepts that we're talking about actually overlap don't they yeah Yeah. Um, yeah so yeah talking about um sort of public health implications then yeah as helena said we were a team where two of us were coming from a public health background and two of us were coming from a health psychology background which was brilliant for the research um also very interesting the findings that helena has highlighted, make it clear how important body dissatisfaction is as a public health issue. And I think, to be honest, that's been the sort of key message coming out of our research. It's brought together these two um, disciplines and, and that's the finding that body dissatisfaction, which is something that people in CAR spend a lot of time mm-hmm. researching, is a public health issue. And that means it's important on a really large scale and it's affecting not only young people, but all people, actually. And we know Mm -hmm. that um, since lockdown, um, people are struggling with their mental health a lot more. And we also know that there have been more um, problems with eating disorders, more incidents of eating disorders. So um, these issues are just becoming even more important. And it's been really exciting to work Mm. on this collaboration that's brought together public health and, Mm -hmm. and psychology. And we started having some interesting conversations during our research meetings Mm. um, when we realised that we were coming at things from quite different backgrounds, actually, Mm. quite different viewpoints. And that's when we decided to write a discussion paper because our view of what to do about obesity, our view Mm -hmm. of what to do about obesity in society and what to do about body dissatisfaction was actually at odds. So I come from public health. And the public health messaging is that we need to reduce obesity in society. And so we have all these really strong messages coming out from public health saying, you need to Mm -hmm. lose weight to get fit. You need to go and do more exercise. And I realized that my my health psychology colleagues didn't necessarily agree with this. (laughs) And they were educating me. (laughs) Mm. Um, So we had some great discussions. We didn't fall out. Um, (laughs) And the thing I'd say, what happened was that I learned from health psychology and we wrote this discussion paper, which actually says, look, we have these two problems, Mm -hmm. body satisfaction Mm -hmm. and very high levels of obesity in society. But both of us giving out separate messages surely isn't going to help. I felt we were actually pulling in different directions and that we needed to come up with a joint message. And I think that's what we've done. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that joint message essentially is that we should encourage people to look after their bodies because they will feel better about themselves, about their bodies, Mm. not because they should lose weight. Now, as a public health professional, yes, I think people should lose weight. Obesity is a risk factor for diabetes. It's a risk factor for COVID. But what's clear to me is that telling people to lose weight has not worked. So we need to do something else. And... For me, this is quite a revelation.
0: Okay, well, Izzy, thank you for for sharing that, Helena. I'd love to hear maybe a bit from you, how you to hear more about those conversations with those discussions because I don't agree that people should lose weight or categorically should lose weight. Again, I'd love to hear a little bit more, maybe Helena, from your point of view, um, where you got with that.
2: Yeah, um, it was very interesting. I think Amy, (laughs) Amy and I, like, and then obviously Izzy and Anna. Ooh, Um, I think it was really interesting. I think it does highlight, you know, I don't necessarily agree with Izzy either, but then Izzy does come from a public health background, and sadly, as we know as body image researchers, um, God, I hate to say it, but even when we're writing grants, we have to drop in the obesity word. We've had to traditionally because otherwise it's not taken seriously. You know, we say, oh body dissatisfaction leads to higher weight obesity, even though, you know, we don't agree with that ourselves. And I think the problem is that because it hasn't been taken seriously, you know, the fact that body dissatisfaction is associated with all these other risky health outcomes that ultimately are going to cost our health system a lot more money. um, I think that's where this comes from. And, you know, we don't agree, you know, we don't agree with the campaigns, especially the ones right now surrounding COVID, the ones surrounding the risk for cancer, I certainly don't agree with them myself. But I think, I guess it is working together to think about how um, we can put this kind of focus on more holistic health. So it's about mental and physical care. Like we know that weight shaming doesn't work. Weight shaming does not make someone lose weight or be healthier or even appreciate their body. That doesn't work. And as a field from a body image health psychology perspective, you know, as we, you know, we know, we, we focus on encouraging people appreciate their body to view their body as an instrument and not um, an ornament, you know, so to use their body for good, to take care of their body. And essentially we know obviously from the research that if you encourage someone to, um, to, to, Kind of view their body in a way that yes, they we may not expect them to necessarily love how they look, but they actually appreciate the positive aspects of what their body allows them to do, then actually they're more likely to take care of their body, whereby they will eat healthier foods, they will, you know, engage in movement and exercise more. And also more importantly, they will have a more positive view of their body. And so I think really it's shifting the public health message to that. Because then what will happen is, you know, for ourselves, we'll, you know, we'll feel better that people are actually, you know, we're encouraging people to, to appreciate their bodies and actually like them and kind of combat the societal messages that you know we should feel ashamed of you know putting on weight and particularly in a time like now where people are putting on weight because you know they they can't move their bodies they can't you know they're not feeling good about their bodies because of covid and the restrictions but then they're also being sent you know these messages oh you know, higher weights associated with COVID risk. And it's, it's a really horrible message to be sending to people. So, yeah, I think it's kind of having that holistic message because we know that weight shaming isn't going to do anything. Quite the opposite, actually. So, really, we should be encouraging people to appreciate their body. And that's what the public health campaigns
3: should be doing. We've shown that it's negative that we're going to do damage, a lot of damage, if we mm-hmm. put those messages out there. And, I, yeah, that I, for me, that's the big sort of revelation turning point
0: yeah um,
3: and 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 i think that's one of our key findings for public health key mm-hmm. messages of public health is that we could make things an awful lot worse we already have a mental health crisis and we're going to make things mm-hmm. more worse if we go on and on about you must lose weight
0: right and i think it's so important to have these conversations with people who maybe are coming from different starting views because I think we can all operate and this is in this is not limited to um, this particular conversation it it transcends across lots of different polarizing conversations but if we are continuing to have these conversations in our own bubbles we don't make progress together so I think it's really good that you have had those conversations and start and had written this this discussion paper as a way of moving forward um, together rather than still shouting your own message but respectively and I think that the other thing for me within this whole conversation is is and Helena I know you you brought up weight shaming but it's thinking about uh, weight stigma in society more broadly it's thinking about social determinants of health Um, we've got a great episode with Ollie Williams, uh, Jade um, spoke with Ollie about to to kind of explore this conversation from that point of view. And actually, um, I would love, from a public health point of view, for more to be done to address poverty, to address food scarcity, to address all of these other underlying issues, to address racism, to look at all of these things that are often not included in this conversation when we make these very quick links between weight and health outcomes.
3: And actually, Nadia, there, you are completely in agreement with public health. I mean, public health is all about wider determinants of health. So, yeah, we all agree on that. (laughs) Great.
1: Yeah, I do want to just chime in there and uh, echo and agree with all the comments, but also how... um, I really liked and enjoyed like the conversation that even just Helena and and Izzy you've had there because it's really clear and some questions that we often do hear is like, well, you know, why don't people just lose weight and all these kind of very echo chamber comments that happen in like in you know people who have not seen it from other perspectives and this is a really clear conversation explaining wait we need to take a step back you know we're we're going far too narrow here we need to think about broader societal you know factors that might influence and I think that conversation was really really you know helpful and I hope lots of people will take away important things from that um and again just to echo I really like that you came from different side points and actually you know met and agreed on a a similar problem of body dissatisfaction that needs to be focused on here so leading into that I kind of wondered what are the important future directions and next steps for research in this area so yeah either of you
3: thank you so well I think what was quite new about what we did was we were focusing on disordered eating rather than eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that we feel eating disorders is quite narrow and clinical and actually disordered eating applies to much more of the population. And the other thing that we did that was quite new was focusing on men as well as young women. Um, But that was just a start. So I think that a lot more work needs to be done. in in both those areas and, as I said earlier, replicating our findings in other cohorts and preferably younger cohorts because what we have discovered in our research may not be applicable to children of today because things are moving so fast, social media is moving so fast. Um, So I think there needs to be a lot more research, longitudinal research, focusing on disordered eating. Focusing on young men and looking at those mediators that we've just started to try and unpick, but you know, it's likely that the mediators are going to be quite different for young men and young women. Um, and, and, and leading on from that, actually, there are other minority groups that have not been studied. So within OUSPAC, for example, there are very, um, very there's a very low proportion of participants from um, different ethnic minorities, not enough really to study. So um, in terms of sexuality, gender, ethnicity, we really need to look at these experiences um, for different groups.
2: And I think just adding that to Izzy, like Nadia said earlier, I think it's looking at, so for example, um, we really wanted to look at um, sexual behaviour. So kind of risky sexual behaviour as an outcome. But unfortunately, in the cohort, we didn't have um, the measures that we needed to look at it. But that was something, you know, particularly I think all four of us care about women's health. Obviously, we're biased for women. Um, and I think that was something we were particularly interested in, but we couldn't look at. And I think especially as that relates to other important kind of, you know, sociodemographic, sociocultural factors as well. And I think, like Izzy said, the the one the one limitation you will see coming time and time and time again about the ALSPAC cohort in papers is the fact that it is a very kind of high socioeconomic white um, sample. And that is that is the biggest limitation. So I think we should be looking at this among other groups. And relatedly, I just wanted to kind of mention that I've been doing a study with some colleagues in India that have been looking at the impact Um, of body dissatisfaction on um, risky dating which is obviously particularly topical in India where so traditionally um, you know that would be a taboo to be dating to engaging in sexual behavior um, you know because ordinarily there would be arranged marriages so you know that's just kind of a start we're at the very beginning of that research but it's fascinating to look at it in that um, you know in that particular group so I think we need to be doing more of that and then the other thing I was going to say is you know so Nadia Jade as we know positive body image is really kind of growing booming and a lot of the cohort studies that we see focus on body dissatisfaction so it's just kind of very um, you know negative focus but actually we want to be doing more looking at positive body image you know so I think um, developing unfortunately I don't think any kind of currently long-standing cohort studies like ALSPAC actually have positive body image measures in there. But in an ideal world, if we were to kind of set up a cohort today, um, you know, I think we would be including measures of body appreciation in there as well. Because again, then we could be learning about what are the factors, the influences, the influences that are fostering body appreciation and then targeting them in interventions. And just one final thing I wanted to say, because I realized that we haven't actually discussed the implications in terms of interventions. Right. And that's a big part of the work that we all do here. Um, and I think what's really great here is that it's highlighting to policymakers, to educators, um, you know, that actually this body dissatisfaction is a public health issue. And because we know it leads to, you know, risky um, health behaviors, depression, disordered eating actually we could simultaneously prevent these outcomes if we focus on body dissatisfaction and like Izzy said the novelty of this research was we were interested in looking at disordered eating in the general population and as we know sadly normative discontent with body dissatisfaction But then the beauty of that is we can actually target these things in schools, for example. And so I think this highlights more and more that we should be working with young people at many different levels. But particularly, why not harness schools that, that, you know, kids go there every single day. That's where they form a lot of their kind of social behaviours, modelling with one another. So actually, this highlights more and more that we should be having, um, you know, preventative interventions in schools. Because then the knock-on effect, not only will it prevent body dissatisfaction, you know, normalise puberty, etc., etc., Hopefully, fingers crossed, it will be more likely to prevent risky um, health behaviors and also depression, disordered eating as well. So yeah, I just thought it's important to highlight that because we haven't actually discussed, we haven't got to that bit yet, have we? Yeah, absolutely,
0: Helena. You covered so much in there, and really glad that you brought in the intervention element as well because again, how much it links to the work that we, or well, many of us at CAR are focused on. So brilliant, a really, a really brilliant note to end on, I think.
1: And before we do wrap up, we do have a final question for you both. Um, I don't know, Helen and I, if you anticipate what the question is coming, <laughs> given <laughs> it's great that, um, yeah, we can ask you guys now, but it is the cake question. And this is a question we like to ask all guests on the podcast. And usually we would have um, car coffee on a thursday morning um pre covid we've all gather and share a delightful um sweet based item didn't have to be cake but we always like to ask our guests what kind of sweet based item would you like to bring um in our uh non existent car coffee but still <laughs> something we can create in our minds <laughs> izzy would you like to
3: start <laughs> i make a very good Um, and marzipan kuchen
0: oh we've definitely not had one of those
3: it's good
1: yeah that is a there's a new one and that sounds delightful
3: (laughs) helena looks like she's not too sure about it
2: no i'm not sure what it is could you
3: explain kuchen is german for cake
2: Ah, kuchen right okay oh amazing oh oh that does sound delicious now now i understand (laughs) (laughs) that does sound great
3: it was obviously my pronunciation. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you need to better your German accent.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and and Helena, what do you want to give us a? I, I know you've you've attended many a car coffee, but what what you're gonna bring for us?
2: see the good thing about obviously answering this question the second time is that because I love so many sweet things it gives me the opportunity to share them so I'm going to go a little bit wild and this seems a bit weird to do when the you know it's quite cold out well it is in the UK at least it's quite cold outside quite dark but I'm going to say an Eton mess Ooh, one of my favorites and obviously you know traditionally we only have them in the summer but um yeah I'm going to throw that out there
0: oh I do do enjoy an Eton mess
1: that oh, is, yeah. <laughs> that is my nan's favourite dessert, and considering she's an avid Aww. listener, she is going to root for you, Helena, on that one as well. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh lovely well um thank you so much Izzy and Helena for joining our conversation um it's great to hear like you say from two different perspectives but you know similar and really important studies that have happened over a very long period of time so well the, the data itself <laughs> and the studies I suppose <laughs> um but yeah it's it's great having you both on and sharing sharing your thoughts on this topic thank you thanks for, thanks having, for us.
2: having us thanks
1: great, great. That was such a good discussion. And we also want to mention that after the recording stopped, Helena, Izzy, Nadia and I continued to have a really important discussion about the complexities of health and how it is much more than than just weight. So as I said, the four of us had a little debrief afterwards. And there were definitely some uncomfortable moments in that conversation. I'm not going to lie. But we continue to reflect on these opposing views um, and also what was very similar and how it's really important to remember conversations aren't always meant to be comfortable and often the most difficult conversations that really, you know, challenge or or make you think about things um, differently can really help us to learn and consider, understand new perspectives. And this kind of goes beyond weight and weight stigma here to other things like race, religion, ability, gender, I can go on. So I I hope this really helped you as the listeners too.
0: Yeah, completely agree, Jade. And I think the view about weight that Izzy expressed is a very common one. And as, and I'm sure we've covered this on the podcast before, as body image researchers one of the most common questions we get asked is a variant of, but what about health? What about health? And that's a thinly veiled way of talking about weight and, quote, the problem of obesity. And I think this question comes up so much because of a lot of the public health rhetoric we have about weight. So there's a lot more about weight than there is about body image. And there's this misconception that if we hate our bodies; we will lose weight, and we know from the science of body image and weight weight stigma that this is absolutely not the case, and actually it's quite the reverse. so if we accept our bodies and look after our bodies and and like our bodies, you don't have to love your body, but just be okay and accept and appreciate your body, you're much more likely to engage in healthful behaviours towards your body, looking after your body with with care and respect. so I think that's really important. And it's important to to see and I so appreciate Izzy sharing this on the episode to, sh- to see her starting point and her journey of where she ended up in terms of I used to think this and now I think that. And I think this will be such a something that I would just love to hear more of, especially with people in positions of power and privilege to say, you know what, how I used to think was... Maybe not the best. I have learned and I have been informed and now I think differently. So I think that's a really useful message. Um, We can't always cancel everyone if they don't think exactly the same as us. I think it's very important to recognise the training that we go through, what informs our own opinions and especially... One of the things that stood out for me in that in that debrief conversation that we had with the four of us is Izzy talking about the training she had as a as a public health professional. And that is completely or in her experience was done um, via the medical model. Um, so a very weight centric view on health. And a lot of her training was done by medics and uh, we also know from the the research how much of the medical field has a long way to go on this topic of weight stigma and having this weight-centric view on health so there's there's a lot of work to be done and to be unpacked but again really appreciate Izzy sharing some of that with us and in turn we wanted to share some of our reflections and the reflections that we had in that debrief conversation with the four of us.
1: I think that's great there's so many important points that you just mentioned there Nadia and And to kind of draw from that, an important point there is that a lot of us, and even in the terms of like medical professionals, as Mm. an example you used, work within the echo chambers and the kind of silos of the teams that they work in. And so often your own opinions and ideas um, and within a team get reflected back at you. So with that in mind, and thinking about like Helena and Izzy, um, it's really important to have multidisciplinary teams to see things and get different perspectives and ideas so that you're not working within the same echo chamber and getting your ideas and beliefs reflected back at you
0: yeah completely agree and then the the final thing that I really took away from that conversation that we had particularly afterwards that debrief conversation and we both said we wish we we just recorded that because um that would have been useful to share but the the takeaway is that we are Also, at the very, very core, we have shared values and want to improve and protect people's well-being and health in a very holistic fashion. So not thinking about health just from a physical health perspective, but also thinking about people's mental health and social health and, and well-being much more broadly than that. And I think we are completely aligned there. And I think it's just understanding, sharing understanding, sharing experiences and talking together, as mm-hmm. we as we have said that, um that can help us move forward. Because as you say, Jade, if we're all operating in silos all the time, and just arguing um between with different views of opinion, we stay stuck, and we don't move forward. Um, but anyway, we could go on and on about this and it's already uh, turning to be a longer episode. We keep saying that we're trying to make our episodes shorter and and, then there's always so much to, so much to, that we want to, to say and share. Um, so something that we will come back to on future episodes. Definitely. For sure. Um, but in the meantime, a few, uh, recommended readings that I know that I have personally found helpful, um, on this topic. So, there's Health at Every Size, The Surprising Truth About Your Weight by Lindo Bacon. It's a classic. Um, it's a really go-to core piece on this topic. Um, I also have really enjoyed Shrill by Lindy West, Heavy by Keith Le- um, Lemon, and then Hunger by Roxanne Gay. There's some books to get into. And then if you're into podcasts, which I assume you are, if you're listening to this. So I really recommend listening to our January episode from last year with Dr. Ollie Williams. Um, we had so many comments and uh, emails and messages in response to that episode saying how it really helped package how people were thinking about this topic. So if you haven't listened to that, really highly recommend that. And then... Finally, last recommendation, I have a second podcast, which I don't think I've mentioned. Maybe I have, maybe I haven't, I can't remember. But the podcast is called The Body Protest. I co-host it with a friend of mine, Honey Ross. And the ethos of it is that we combine storytelling with science in relation to body image and body politics. And there is an episode on there with Professor Philippa Diedrichs from the Centre for Appearance Research on the science of weight stigma, Uh, where we get into some of those complexities with weight, body image and health. So uh, a a whole list for you to choose from.
1: I was just about to say, yeah, a lovely but really comprehensive list um, for the listeners there. And I think that's the perfect way to sum up, really. Just some some further reading and listening for for everyone. Um, Perfect. So that is all we have time for on this episode and we hope that this really helped you kind of have a rundown on the topic of body image at the beginning of this year and and highlighted why it is just so important which we always like to do um but it's important to to stress it even further and this these kind of recaps are really helpful for that as well
0: yeah completely agree jade so thank you again to Izzy and Helena for for joining us on the podcast. And thank you for listening to Appearance Matters, the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, you know what to do. Please remember to share, subscribe, rate and review. It helps other
1: people find the podcast and gives us a little boost. It really does. And remember, you can keep up to date with our centre's work on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. All the links are in the bio. Brilliant. Okay, until next time. Bye.
0: Bye.